Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, and we are going to talk draft. How far away are we? Anybody got the, Jim, Jonathan, got a countdown going? Number of days away? 47 days. Yeah, Jim's got it. Do you have like a thing on on your wall or something? That was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we want to talk about what's going on at the top of the draft class. I believe Jim will be making a case for Paul Skeens to go number one. Talk a little bit about the top college bats, Dylan Cruz and Wyatt Lankford. Is Lankford closing in on Cruz? Uh, We're also going to talk about some of the best prospect finds around baseball. A story that Jim and Jonathan and Sam worked on last week. Uh, One excellent prospect find or bargain, if you will. Uh, One for each team. We'll uh, highlight some of those players. Also going to look at the top 100 prospects list. A couple of new additions and one top 100 prospect making his MLB debut this week. And we're going to check in on the prospect team of the week, a couple player highlight a couple of players there, and we will wrap up by answering a question from the mailbag, and uh, I think it's going to come from one of our old friends. All right, draft, 40-some-odd days away. I like this, Jim, that now you're going to make the case for Paul Skeens to go number one after you disparaged me for suggesting that he should go number one. I feel like disparaging is quite strong. I don't feel like anybody was disparaged. Discouraged? I, I think at the time that the Dylan Cruz was hitting like 592 or something, and I was just, my mind was boggling at that. But it's funny, I was talking to a, a good scouting friend of mine, and we were talking about the draft. And, and I know, it's funny, and Jonathan, I don't know if you've talked to as many people. I mean, you, you've done mocks, but like obviously Paul Skeens is in my area, my neck of the draft. After I stole him from your neck, I know I always complain when you steal my players and they go to IMG Academy, but I <laughs> stole stole Paul Skeens from Air Force as he moved to LSU, so he's in my my domain. But I was talking to a good friend of mine, and like, you know, from talking to people in the draft, you you generally hear one of two things: you get people who are like, "Oh, you got to take Paul Skeens; he's the best pitching prospect since at least Garrett Cole and Strasburg." And Strasburg probably the best pitching prospect, college pitching prospect ever, best draft pitching prospect ever. And then you get people like, ah, you, you got to take the hitter having that kind of year in the SEC. You can't, you know, pitchers are risky. <clears throat> and I get the whole pitchers are risky part, but there's also, you don't get the opportunity to get a guy like Paul Skeens very often. And talking to, to a good friend of mine, he was making the case, and, and I do kind of buy it, and I thought along this way, I, I think Paul Skeens is rarer than Dylan Cruz. Like you just don't find pitchers like Paul Skeens who go out and dominate every game with at least a 70 fastball and the 70 slider and throw a bunch of strikes. And he has a really good changeup. He doesn't land as often as the other two pitches, but it can be a, a 55 or 60 changeup at times. And, and it's so hard to find pitching at any level. And this guy is a potential superstar pitcher. I think relative to his peers, Paul Skeen stands out more than Dylan Cruz does. And I, th- I think, you know, we're, we're talking, we haven't had this conversation, I guess, before now, Jonathan, but we're talking about doing the top 200. We'll, we'll update the draft list. We'll expand. It'll be out next week. I kind of think Paul, Paul Skeen should be number one on that list. What do you think? <sighs> Collective gasp. 
<clears throat> what do you think? And, and I know we haven't even discussed it. No, we haven't discussed it. Uh, no, I think an argument can be made. It, listen, when we put up the 150, I really kind of thought of them as one and one A. I don't, there, and that was, you know, Cruz was out of his head. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think there was that much separating the two of them. So uh, I look forward to, you know, trying to sort through that and decide what we, what we want to do. But I, I, I could, I could see kind of flipping them one and two, which may lead into the, the you know, the next question uh, and about the, the college bats in a second. But, you know, and I think you, you look at the pirates who pick one, you can make an argument in either direction. And I think some of the argument is the same, right? Both, I think Paul Skeens and Dylan Cruz uh, will handle a very advanced assignment in their first full seasons. And I think either of them could end up in the big leagues in less than a year if everything goes well. You know, so, uh, you know, if you're a Pirates fan and you're thinking, I want somebody who's going to be, you know, obviously, a, hopefully an all-star because that's what you want when you pick 1-1. One, one. But I also want someone who's going to help soon. This is a perfect year for you if you want to take one of those two guys. Um, you know, we can save the, the the high school names for for, you know, another discussion but you know i i think there is very little separating the two of them so i i guess i'm saying i can be convinced and you know it's interesting too like just as an aside how much do you think the nationals are hoping that the pirates take an outfielder number one because the nationals the strength of their system like i don't have their listed front but it seems like four you know their top five prospects are outfielders they don't need more outfielders you know but like if Skeens goes number one then you're looking essentially at four outfielders for pick number two. So that, that'll be kind of interesting. But, you know, and, and again, and I'm not, you, you guys know, big proponent of Dylan Cruz. It seems like we've been talking one and one A, while always acknowledging that, that, that there's not a huge difference between Wyatt Langford and Dylan Cruz. But it almost seems weird to me, Jonathan, that you, we just don't hear Langford's name talked about. Like, like everybody assumes, okay, the LSU guys are going one, two. And it's not based on stats. But did you know that Wyatt Langford has an ops at 64 points higher than Dylan Cruz's now? I, I I still personally would take Dylan Cruz ahead of Wyatt Langford because I think I think Cruz is I think he runs a little bit better. I think he controls the strike zone a little bit better. I think he's got a better chance to play center field. But but you're essentially splitting hairs. Um, but like everybody acts like there's I shouldn't say everybody, but but just to talk about who's gonna go number one. I just don't feel like we ever hear Wyatt Langford's name. I wonder if that would be different if he had played center field at Florida at all. Um, you know, just to show, because there are people who think that he's athletic enough to to play center and runs well enough, but he hasn't. You now, some of that is, you know, college teams are going to do what they feel they need to do in coaches to win. And they have, a, you know, they felt it was a better defensive outfield with him in in, in a corner. Um, but if he had played center field all year and shown that he was a decent center fielder, then, you know, you, you may not separate them at all. You know, you, you mentioned the, the, the offensive numbers and, and the fact, you know, that they have, there are some similar, similar skill sets. They, they both have a chance to for average and power and have a track record of success in the SEC. There is really not much separating them, but that to me is one big separator because even if you think, oh, you know, I still think that 
we could draft Wyatt Langford and send him out in center field and see how it looks outside of some time there in fall ball. He's never played there. So you, you just don't know. And the fact that he may end up and or likely ends up in left field when Dylan Cruz has shown that he can play center field. That's, you know, a bit of a separator when we're in this sort of splitting hairs territory. You guys, uh, have have you seen the the drop off uh, from Cruz over the past month in in terms of performance? His OPS in February was one point three eight nine, and March was one point six six seven. In April, one point three five six. Do you know what it is in May? Well, seeing as overall numbers have dropped, I'm going to say it's uh, eight ninety seven. Oh, I'm going to say lower. I'm going to yeah, I'm going to say the lower. I'm going to say the first number starts with a seven. Of his options, you'd, you'd still be too high. I was going to say just, six. This is like the price, is, price right. is right. That's what I was thinking. It might be a six. It's six 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 sixty four. I mean, he he hit five nineteen in February, five twenty four in March, four thirty four in April. He's hitting two thirty five across twelve games in May, which you know I I I kind of wondered. I wanted to ask you guys. I it, it, you look at Langford's numbers. Much more consistent across the board, 1.496, 1.215, 1.251, 1.542, actually ticking up in May. Does recency bias come into play in the draft? Like, obviously, we're, we're talking about like a month here, but it's right at the end of their college careers. It's right before the draft. How much does it factor in? I think it does a little bit, but more so for pitchers. Like if a pitcher comes out and he's, he's dominating or, or if he really struggles, that can, that can change things. I think with hitters, you, you tend to look at the body of work and even though he's struggled down the stretch, what's crazy is Cruz is still hitting four Oh five in sec play with uh, eight homers and 27 walks and 29 games. So it's not like, I, I think it's more just a slump. I, I don't think anybody's looking at it in his case is like, Oh man, he's not hitting. Like they figured him out. The, the, the LSU whole situation is weird too, because you know, really good team, but they're, and, and this doesn't affect Cruz's hitting at the plate, but like their pitching is kind of a shambles because they've had so many injuries behind skeins that, you know, if you told me that they went out like earlier than we all expect, I don't think it's impossible because I think the pitching is super shaky behind Paul Skeens. Hmm. Yeah, and I and listen, it all could. I do think that there can be a recency bias, but there's still baseball to be played. You know, so if Cruz goes out SEC tournament, if they, you know, depending on how far they go, you know, and he hits really well, you know, in postseason play, then much of his May struggles will be forgotten. And all that said about his recent struggles, he still reached base. In every single game this year, by hit or walk, uh, and I think it's I think it's like fifty eight or fifty nine games straight going back to last year. Reached in this. Where are you pulling all these stats from, Jason? Like I'm, this is off the top of my head. <laughs> you, 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 you just if, like if you, I remember if I remember correctly. You keep you keep monthly splits. He DVRs every LSU game and watches them. He, he keeps monthly splits for every uh, every player on the top one fifty. So, including high schoolers, that's very impressive. Uh I guess since last we spoke, Skeens went out and did what Skeens always does, seven innings, four hits, did give up a couple runs, walked one, struck out 12 uh, against Jim's alma mater. Uh, 
before the he, before the mighty Georgia Bulldogs lost in extra innings. We we rallied late and then lost in extra innings. Yeah, first said. Skeens on the season now is ten and one, a one point seven seven ERA, has struck out one hundred and sixty four batters in fifty innings against fifteen walks. I think his eighty six and two thirds innings. To be fair, what I say. 50, which I think you're looking at. Oh, I'm sorry, 50 hits, 50 hits. He's giving up 50 hits, He's striking out more than three guys per inning. That's (laughs) (laughs) No, but he has has struck out 17 per nine, which I think uh, is on pace to break the all-time NCAA Division I record. Um, You know who holds that record? uh, I think it's... Former first-round pick? I think it's Ryan Wagner, but I'm not 100% sure. Is that right? It is Ryan Wagner. Yeah. So he's, he's right... He's on pace to break that record. I, I was looking at his numbers compared to Strasburg. Strasburg's final year, 13 and 1, 1.32 ERA, 109 innings pitched, 195 strikeouts, 16.1 K to 9. I mean, you know, I think we'll t- we'll talk about this more as we approach the draft, but I know Jim one thing that we've talked about getting into is trying to determine is Skeens the best college pitching prospect ever is he the best since cole since strasburg how, how to how to frame it i mean when you look at those numbers compared to strasburg compare the stuff and I, I would think the level of competition might set him apart from from strasburg isn't he isn't he facing better competition on a game in game out basis well, of course. I mean, he's in the SEC. Right. I mean, I mean you, you know, I'm Mr. SEC. I'm, the, I'm of course, going to. Way to go out on a limb. Yeah. Say that. Like, like asking me questions, you know, the answer. <laughs> just give me a hard time. But, like, but yeah, no, I mean, he is. I mean, I, I think it, it's going to be, it, it depends on how you want to look at it. I think from a, you know, dominance, you know, relative to level of competition, you know, and, and Gary, if you remember, Garrett Cole had a losing record. Not that we're judging guys off one loss records, but Garrett Cole wasn't even the most dominant pitcher on his own team in his draft year. That, that was Trevor Bauer, um, who, you know, Garrett Cole's statistics looked ordinary compared to Bauer's. I mean, I might be exaggerating a little bit, but I think if you look at stuff relative to his era, I think Strasburg, like, there are more, you know, velocity is more prevalent today than it was, I guess, what was Strasburg, 14 years ago now? Um you know, I, I think like you don't see guys going out and and you know striking out eleven guys and walking one every time like like Skeens is doing. Um, but I do think there are guys you know who are throwing in the upper nineties a lot more these days than there were back in the day. So I think it kind of depends on how you look at it. I think Skeens had better command than Strasburg. You know, that maybe that's the tiebreaker. Like if you want to go two way ability, I mean, I, the, the, you know, Skeens was a guy like. The, you know, he obviously they've made the right decision, but I think you know I think people felt like if Skeens was a, a just a position player only, you know, based on talking to people in the fall what they'd seen at Air Force and Team USA, that they thought he would have been a top three round pick, and you know potentially hit fifteen home runs this season. So, yeah, I wish we I wish we could have seen him hit this year. Uh, I didn't I didn't know whether he had an at bat at all, but it appears he has not had. No, no, they, they like I don't th- I think he. I think he swung the bat. I, I think he had at, took at bats maybe one day in the fall, and that was it. They just decided <laughs> it's hard to argue with it. It was not worth messing with, and I mean, and their lineups also ridiculous as well. So they didn't really need him either. 
He seems to have made that transition pretty, pretty smoothly. Not related to this year's draft, but when I was looking into whether Skeens was on pace to break the K to nine record this year, a record that I saw that I thought was interesting. And Jim, I would imagine, you know, the answer to this most consecutive scoreless innings thrown by a pitcher in a season. You know, it's interesting because like, there's no, like records were very sketchy on this. Yeah. Is, is, is it, is Todd Helton credited with that record? He is. It is Todd Helton. Amazing. Because like Ben McDonald had a long stretch in his year. And I think Cl- Roger Clemens may have had a stretch at Texas. But yeah, it's uh, the, the NCAA record book is interesting. But like in Helton, I mean, obviously had a, you know, he might want to be in a Hall of Fame career as a, as a first baseman in Colorado. But he was, I mean, a tremendous, tremendous pitcher in college as well. You know, he and Ari Dickey were on some volunteers teams that went to Omaha. Um, you know, also a backup quarterback right. on the football team, just a tremendous athlete. And I won't get into one of my uh my my super long detailed old man callous stories, but and I may have told you guys this before. I still remember the draft used to coincide with the College World Series. I would be covering it for Baseball America while the draft was going on and we would do a press conference where it was like super cool technology. We would pipe in, MLB would let us pipe in the first round conference call so players would find out in Omaha at our press conference where they got picked. And I still remember Todd Helton's just expression. He could not stop smiling when the Rockies took him just because of the, you know being able to go hit in Coors Field. And the I think, well, I don't remember, I don't think we talked to Eric Cabot about this when we had him on a scout of the year. Eric, I think, was assistant scouting director back then, maybe a scouting director, but the A's were going to take Todd Helton and they switched. Do you remember who they switched and took because the guy was going to be able to, to pitch in the big leagues almost immediately? Uh, what year was this? 1995. Todd Helton was our player of the year at Baseball America as well, beating out Mark Hatze, the, the champion Cal State Fullerton Titans, another two-way star. Hmm. But yeah, the A's had the fifth pick. Everybody thought they were taking Todd Helton, and they, they, they made a, a, a late change. It's yeah, it's it's not Van Poppel because that's several years. That was yeah, 1990. Yeah, that's prior. why I asked because that's what the first one that came to my mind. This guy did pitch in the big leagues that year. Oh, um, the, uh, his draft year. Yes, it's um, uh, Ariel Prieto. You are exactly correct. In fact, I think he went straight from the independent Western League to the big leagues. But yes, they they wanted the big league ready arm, and they went with Ariel Prieto. And it, Oops. Yeah, that didn't quite yeah, work made, out. You're, as you're, you are correct, by the way. He made his major league debut on July 2nd, 1995. So anyway, I, I digress. But yeah, the, the Todd Helton one was interesting. And like, that's one, you know, who knows? There might have been some guy. I don't know why. I'm not looking at the record book, but I think like Keith Weber at Missouri holds like the ERA record or something. And who knows how many, like with a 0-3 something ERA, who knows how many consecutive scoreless innings he threw. But yes. Todd Helton, I think, is is the one who is recognized. Yep. All right. Uh, That's going to wrap up our draft chat. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the top 100 prospects list. A couple of new additions with a couple of recent graduations and another guy uh, on the top 100 prospects list making his MLB debut. That's coming up next on the MLB Pipeline podcast. It's 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. We're going to talk about some guys that are on the top 100 prospect list now, including the newest two members, both of whom are catchers. It's all we're adding now. Just we're, we're not. And when guys graduate, we're just going to add more catchers. That's all we're going to do from this point on. That's going to get rough. I wonder how many we have now. We've we've added a bunch though since the yes. season started. I think we've added, and I don't think I'm missing, but we've added Dalton Rushing. No, we did. We we added Yanir Diaz who graduated, and we've also added Dalton Rushing, Ethan Salas, Edgar Cuero, and now two more last week. Is that six catchers? We may be right around the the all time high mark as far as catchers on the top 100 goes we only have we only have numbers for you know the beginning either the pre when the preseason list comes out or when the midseason list comes out um and we've seen a pretty serious increase in the number of catchers on the list over the past uh three years we had a high water mark of 12 starting in midseason 2021 and then both the list last year, uh, our preseason list this year had nine. Uh, I'm guessing maybe we lost one or two, maybe more. I think we have graduation. twelve currently because I know Francisco Alvarez graduated, Yanir Diaz graduated after we added him. Yeah, Logan Ohapi's still on there because he got hurt. Yeah, so we're we're maybe right it. around that mark. Yeah, everybody wants to be like Adley Rutschman. That's that's what it is. All all these guys want to emulate. Yeah, they, they grew up watching Adley. They Rutschman. just they just they, started they heard about last him. Tuesday. They heard about him. Yes. Is Austin Wells older than Adley Rushman? Mm, he was a 2020. I'm going to say no. I think he's a year younger. He probably. He's 23. Uh, he is uh, one of the two additions, Yankees backstop prospect. And the other is Jefferson Cuero of the Brewers. Jim, tell us a little bit about Austin Wells. You know, he was Jonathan's guy in the draft back in, in the strange 2020 draft where nobody really played. And, and Jonathan, I felt like he kind of, Flew under the radar. I mean, he was a, for, it feels weird saying this for a guy's first round pick, but yeah, seriously, I really thought he was one of the best offensive players in that draft. I mean, he was the Pac 12 freshman of the year, the Cape Cod League top prospect in 2019, his only full season. He gets to play four weeks in 2020 and it shuts down. But in terms of being able to hit for average, being able to hit for power and, and draw walks and control the strike zone. I thought he was one of the best all-around offensive talents in that draft. Now, you know, the big question, and it still remains, is, is he a catcher? Um, you know, he has elbow problems that, that, that cropped up in high school. He doesn't throw great. He doesn't receive great. But he has gotten better. I think, you know, it's still a question. I, I think if, if you like him... You think he can be an adequate catcher with an adequate arm? Um, he has worked very hard on that. You know, he's one of these guys who it's all about the bat and, and the defense doesn't matter. Um, and the Yankees, for years, have 
you know, going back to Posada, many years of Gary Sanchez, you know, Jesus Montero didn't pan out, but just they've drafted guys. They, they have a, an affinity for offensive minded catchers, like, like offense versus defense. I think the Yankees are probably skewed more on offense towards their catchers than any team, any organization in baseball. And, you know, he has, you know, produced, I mean, he's, he's played 215 pro games. He's in double a now. He's a career 270 hitter, but it's a 383 on base percentage. It's 44 homers. Um, he's kind of been everything he's been cracked up to be, uh, you know, as a player while continuing to learn and work hard on his catcher. So I, I think we'll see him in the big leagues in the near future. Still uncertain where he winds up. And like, you know me, I mean, I say this all the time. I always feel like you have a guy who's that gifted offensively. I'd rather just see him play every day, like in left field or whatever, and make the most out of his bat, you know, kind of like Kyle Schwarber. But, you know, he's working hard at the catching. The Yankees seem committed to it, so so we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, you could make the argument that maybe he'd be in the big leagues already if he weren't catching. Yeah, perhaps. So uh, the other guy that we added, another catcher, I don't know if you want to say other end of the spectrum. And Jonathan, you, you when we were off the air, you said if you combine these guys, you'd have a what, I don't know, what is it, Hall of Famer? Hall of Famer? Uh, yeah. Maybe maybe going a little far, but uh, you, got the, you got the offense with Wells and uh, you got the defense with Cuero. Yeah, and, and, and I don't want to sell Jefferson Cuero's offensive upside short. Um, yeah, I think we all, and when I say we, Jim, me, and Sam Dykstra, all saw Jefferson Cuero in the Arizona Fall League probably do something. Was he the defensive player of the year, Jonathan? Who was the defensive player of the year in the fall league? Do we remember? I do not remember. It felt like it should have been him because <laughs> the first time I saw him play, he threw out three base stealers in one game. It was uh, it was crazy. And you know, and you think about like all the rules in place that are encouraging base stealing. He threw out forty six percent in in the fall league. He threw out thirty nine percent. In uh, in double A, he's made the, the the jump to double A. He's only twenty, and he's throwing thirty nine percent. So the defensive end stands out. And he didn't really hit much in the fall league, but I remember talking to him. It was one of his better offensive games, and it's and it was in there. You know, in twenty twenty two, he was a teenager. He played against good competition across the two levels of A ball as a teenager, and he showed some pop. He had ten homers, twenty two doubles. And what's really encouraging on the offensive side is that he is swinging the bat well in the Southern League. You know, he's slugging 560. He's already hit eight homers in just 26 games. He's going to catch in the big leagues because of the defense. And if he swings the bat at all, he's going to be a, like a, a an upper level, perhaps an all-star level catcher. And we, we talked a bunch about him for the preseason list, just because we liked them so much in the fall league. But uh, I know for me, I try to, I try to check the, the sort of familiarity bias with that uh, and realize what a small sample was, but the defense was unbelievable and the offensive potential was there. And I think the fact I'm glad we waited and he's taken a nice step forward so far offensively to go along with that plus defense and the ridiculous arm. Uh, and that's why we, why he's on the top 100 now. All right. Uh, someone else on the top 100 list, well up there on the list, is right-hander Bobby Miller. 
of the Dodgers as we record this. He has not yet made his Major League ba- debut, but we are very much looking forward to that. He is uh, number 19 on the top 100 prospects list among right-handed pitching prospects. He ranks number five behind Yuri Perez, Andrew Painter, Taj Bradley, Gavin Williams, uh, all of whom are are either in the big leagues or just about big league ready with, you know, Painter maybe being the exception there, you know, obviously being injured, but, you know, there, there was some buzz in spring training about the possibility of him breaking camp with the Phillies. So, uh, yeah, you know, number six and seven on that right-handed pitchers list also in the big leagues and Brandon Fott and Tanner Bybee. And so is Gavin Stone, man, this, this right-handed pitcher. Our pitching might just get devastated by the time we update this in July or the season's over. You might have to put me on there. Well, Paul Skeens is going to, Paul Skeens might be the top pitching prospect in baseball. If, Wow. If Painter's still out, um, but man, there's no pitching in this year's draft. There's no pitching depth. Yeah, so it's, it's not like we we're going to have like seven. To come. You're right. We're, we're going to have seven pitchers on the top 100 by the time all these guys graduate. It's like it's it's going to be brutal. But um, that that sounds like a good uh, good inbox question to be answered. Whether Skeens could be the top ranked pitching prospect in baseball? Maybe maybe Jason R from uh, Brooklyn. <laughs> or, Brooklyn will we'll, 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 should send that in to uh, or or tweet it at pop tweet up it at guy. Me pop-up guy and then i could uh i could do that but yeah no but you know it, it's back to bobby funny. miller yeah you know, we, we talk about how the dodgers have top 100 prospects seemingly one after another and bobby miller is only the fourth top 100 prospect to join the dodgers this season following miguel vargas who's graduated michael bush gavin stone who you just alluded to and that doesn't even include non-top 100 prospect james outman who's a leading contender right now for National League Rookie of the Year. So the Dodgers, you know, when we keep telling people that they have this endless supply of talent, it it does feel that way. And, you know, Bobby Miller, I I think he's got the best four-pitch repertoire of anybody on our top 100 prospects list. The the pitch that you notice immediately is the fastball. I mean, he averages 98 miles an hour, 99 miles an hour with his fastball. That's averages. You know, his last start in the, in AAA, he averaged 99.5 through 43 fastballs, 19 were 100 miles an hour, three were 101. There's arm side run that when he isn't throwing the fastball by you, produces a lot of weak contact if you do put in play. And oh, if he feels like it, he can throw a two-seamer with, with more pronounced sink that also reaches 101 miles an hour. So the fastball is pretty crazy. And then, you know, the secondary pitches, he's got an upper 80 slider. That can be a plus-plus pitch with two-plane depth at its best. He's got an upper 80s changeup with fade and sink that can be a well-above-average pitch. He's got a solid low 80s curveball that, for him, is only his fourth-best pitch, but would be you know pretty nice breaking ball for most guys. Um, yeah, I, yeah, The one thing that's interesting about him is as good as the stuff are, and he's improved his delivery, he's thrown more strikes since he, he came out of college at Louisville, he doesn't dominate as much as you think. He does get strikeouts. He does throw strikes. But his career ERA in the minors is 3.79, and he'll he'll get predictable in counts sometimes, especially if he's struggling to land his secondary pitches for strikes. And then the fastball gets hit more than it should. You know, I still don't think he's quite a finished product. You know, this year, you know, was kind of an unusual start to the season for him. He had a Mild case of shoulder soreness in spring training, so they shut him down. Took a while to build his arm strength back up. He missed the first month of the PCL season, and 
he has thrown last year he had a lot more success he threw his, his curveball and slider for strikes you know a little over 60% of the time this year it's been under 50% of the time the changeup kind of comes and goes in terms of strikes but he hasn't necessarily been at his best until that last start where i referenced where he was averaging 99 and a half miles an hour with fastball he gave up one run in six innings but like i i I'll be curious to see what happens with him. You know, they have two starters on the DL right now with Dustin May and Julio Urias. You know, I, I think even if he pitches well, I suspect when those guys are ready to come back, that he'll probably get some more AAA time. But I do think a year or two from now, you know, this is a guy who who could be the Dodgers' best pitcher. The stuff's that good. I do think in terms of readiness to sustain success in the big leagues, I probably feel a little bit better about Gavin Stone for 2023, if that makes sense. That does make sense. What didn't make sense, Jim, did you, I was, I was thrown for a loop. Did you refer to stuff in the plural? His stuff are? I don't think so. <laughs> I think you did. Yeah. I, well, let's run I the like tape it. back right I like now. It. He's going to start covering uh, European football now. <laughs> exactly. I like that. Uh, all right. Let's take a break so we, we can uh, roll the tape back and listen. Uh, when we come back, we're going to discuss some of the best prospect finds around the league, check in on some of the most recent uh, prospect team of the week players, and answer a question from the mailbag. That's all coming up next on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Jim Callis, Jonathan Mayo, I'm Jason Ratliff. Uh, we want to talk about some of the best prospect finds around the league. I thought this was interesting, especially how the mix of, of players. So uh, what we wanted to do is identify the best prospect find for each team. That could be either somebody who went relatively low in the draft, an international signee, uh, that didn't get a huge bonus, uh, somebody that a team landed in a trade in what has turned out to be a steal, perhaps. And then there were some uh, quite a few non-drafted free agents, which I wasn't uh, expecting. Do you guys, what what would your guess be of those four categories, most most to least of the 30 players that you guys identified in this story? So we're talking about bargain draft, bargain international, bargain trade, and non-drafted free agents? Yep. Do, do I, I want to say there are three non-drafted free agents on the list. Am I right? I believe there are six. Six. Wow. <laughs> I think I that, see, not, I was, I that was surprised there were so many. But I would say that the bargain international is the, is the biggest category. Bargain draft. Okay. See. Uh, 13, eight international signees, three via trade and six non-drafted free agents. Who are, who are non-drafted free agents? Yeah. Oh. Well, I, I know we have the two guys for 2020, Justin Jordan and Matt Mervis, and I know I'm going to talk about one. You're going to talk about bit. one, but like, who are the other three on here? Well, I'm looking at this right now. I'm skeptical. I'm, I'm <laughs> questioning this. Questioning Jason Ratliff? I am. All right. Well, while Jim questions it, um, let's let's break yes. this down a little bit. Let's talk about the best overall finds, uh, and Jonathan while. While Jim tries to disprove me here, uh, why don't you? Why don't you go <laughs> I'm first? I'm still stuck on three. Well, no, 
We got four. I got four. I'm up to right. four. We'll this see if we finish. <laughs> you can update us in real time. If um, only you could see me scrolling down my screen, it would be even more exciting. Very exciting. We should do this on video. Uh, yeah. I mean, any chance I have to talk about Ellie De La Cruz, I'm going to take it. And, you know, I think he's an obvious guy to talk about just because of what he signed for and what, and what he's been doing and is about to do in the big leagues, I think probably soon signed for just $65,000 back in, in 2018. And, you know, the thing that makes it you know, even more interesting is he was fine in the, in the Dominican summer league the next year, and then he didn't play in 2020. So he came to 2021 and we've talked about this a, a lot, you know, uh, <laughs> People telling me he needed to be on the top 100 because they saw him in the in the complex league in Arizona, and he played his way out of there that year. And he wasn't even on my radar for the Reds' top 30. And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, we need to move him way up. And of course, he's moved his way higher and higher. Last year, the 2040 season, which was absolutely insane, you know, had a, a minor injury. And uh, now is back to doing kind of Ellie De La Cruz type things. And he's up to seven homers and seven steals. Uh, you know, he, I think his approaches is better. Uh, he, he's breaking stat cast on a regular basis. And I think that um, the clock is ticking now. Like I, I think that he is now starting to loudly knock on the door to Cincinnati. Okay, Jason, I owe you an apology. There are some. <laughs> I, I was trying to scroll too quickly to be efficient, apparently. I, I, I failed my, my, you owned my it, ability though. to process information quickly. So Thank you, Joe. Your apology is accepted. Thank you. Uh, now, why don't, why don't you tell us about another guy? Uh, best overall. Yeah, and that, that would be Yuri Perez, who is a whopping three spots behind Ellie De La Cruz at number seven. You know, and, and our, our Marlins are at Christina De, De Nicola did a great job. She did a big feature on Yuri when he came to the big leagues a couple of weeks ago. And she, and she dealt, I had always heard that there were other teams that were, that were going to sign Perez before they fell through. And the specifics are still kind of murky. It wasn't anything obviously too serious because he's never been hurt as a pro, but apparently the Red Sox and the Rockies were close to deals or had deals and backed out. And the Marlins were able to sign him for $200,000 out of the Dominican in 2019. And, you know, he didn't get to make his pro debut, obviously, next year because of the pandemic. But I do remember uh, the, the pandemic year, which fortunately is is now three years behind us. But as you guys remember, I mean, we were like, okay, where are we going to cover? There, you know, we had the draft keeping us going for a while, even though guys weren't playing games. And that was the year I think we... I think what 28 of 30 teams ran instructional league programs. So it was like, we blew out instructional league coverage. And I remember Jeff DeGroote, who, who was then overseeing the farm system for the Marlins tell me, Hey, like, you know, okay, who's, who's the guy we should know about. And when I was asking, you know, that, that isn't on people's radar and he was just raving about the six foot eight kid who had unbelievable combination of polish and stuff. And, and that was Yuri Perez and, and they've promoted him aggressively ever since. Um, and he has not <laughs> missed a beat. Like he handled low A. I want to say, I think he made his low A debut. Well, I mean, you know what? He has an April birthday. So maybe he was 18 because the season started late in 2021. 20, 
but he handled low A and high A at age 18. He handled double A at 19. He, he went back to double A this year, pitched well. And, and so far through two starts, he's given up three runs and struck out 13 and nine and two thirds innings with the Marlins. So, um, it's, uh, yeah, I think you can. I mean, he's right there. I guess we have him what one spot behind Grayson Rodriguez as top pitching prospect in baseball. He, he's certainly in that discussion for. Uh, or I, I, you know what? He is a top pitching prospect in baseball because I forgot Grayson Rodriguez graduated. So Yuri Perez now officially, for now, the top pitching prospect in baseball. I I had missed that. All right, let's let's talk about some more of these guys who are interesting for a variety of reasons. And uh, we've talked about someone named De La Cruz. We've talked about someone who's six eight. Uh, Jonathan, why don't you tell us about someone who is both of those things? Oh, very nicely done. Uh, you Carlos stunned him. La... He's like, <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Who tell us about Ellie again. Keep telling us about Ellie. <laughs> he's not six eight. He's not O'Neill Cruz. So uh, you know, <clears throat> as much as he gets compared to him, um, yeah, Carlos De La Cruz. By the way, a, a a non-drafted free agent. One of six, I believe. Yeah, I think six is correct. I'm with you. I always believed you. It, it, and it's a fascinating story because this is not this wasn't a 2020 shortened draft, which is still impressive by the way. But this was in 2017. He signed out of high school because the Phillies saw him playing for what was called the New York Nine Scout Team. He went to George Washington High School. Uh, pop quiz, Manny Ramirez. easy one. What? Manny Ramirez. Yeah, I don't even have to ask the question. And kind of muddled through the lower rungs, didn't do much. And then last year, he uh, reached double-A for the first time. He had 17 homers. Uh, he performed well in the Arizona Fall League. That was a good test for him. And now he's in Reading, doing well in double-A overall. Uh, again, the power is is real. He's got nine homers in 37 games. Uh, so he's slugging 500. I, I don't know what he's going to become. He's been playing first base pretty much every day. The crazy thing is, is that he, he's really athletic. He could play center field. Um, so maybe he moves around a little bit, you know, for first base makes the most sense, uh, you know, just because of the size, but he does move pretty well. So you don't want to sell him short there. He's, only 23 for all this year. So there's time still for him to figure it out. But the fact even that he's in double A, given from where he came from, is already a success story. And you know what? I don't think we've ever done this story, but we should. I mean, the Phillies do an unbelievable work. New York high schools, Jonathan, they, they signed Carlos De La Cruz as a free agent in 2017. The same year they drafted Ben Brown in the 33rd round. He wasn't even a big overslot signing. Brown now, you know, on the cusp of the top 100 prospects list, got traded to the Cubs for David Robertson last year. And then they came back the next year in 2018 and got another New York City area high school kid, Logan O'Hoppy, who we just talked about before briefly in the 23rd round. The Phillies doing some unbelievable work in New York. So very, very quickly, the the Long Island connection is real because they've drafted some other guys. And that is... uh... Uh, largely because not not because of a domestic scout. It's mostly because of relationships Sal. that Sal Ag- Agostinelli, who is their Latin American director, uh, has in in Long Island baseball community. And that, I mean that's that's a big reason why they've brought in some of that. Now I don't know if Sal's hands are on in, in on the Carlos De La Cruz signing, but uh, Ben Brown and Logan O'Hoppy very much so. 
I think Sal knows everybody yes. in baseball everywhere, doesn't he? Like, That's probably true. Jim, remember when uh, De La Cruz showed up to the fall league? You and I were there early, <laughs> and it was uh, it was like media day, and the guys were coming out, and we were trying to identify everybody as they were coming onto the field, and we we're like, who is this giant pitcher? <laughs> you know, we, we were just like, sure, this guy, he's 6'8", he's right. clearly a pitcher, and then I uh, stepped in and started taking BP, and we we're like, wait a second. Yeah. No, I do remember that, because it's like we saw him, we we're like, who is that guy? He's like much taller than everybody else, and we just assumed he had to be a pitcher, and then he got in the cage, and he had a good fall league, too. I mean, I think everybody, every yeah. hitter has a good fall league for the most part, but it, it was fun watching him play as well. All right. Uh, someone you want to hit on here, Jim, that you found interesting from this list. Yeah, I'll give you two National League West guys. Um, one, I mean, we haven't talked as much about Von Brown this year because he's coming off offseason knee surgery to clean up his knee. Um, but he, he's just getting going. I think he's got promoted to double A recently and he's hitting a robust uh, 341 with a 999 ops, two homers and five steals in 11 games. And he pretty much put up those numbers for a full season last year. Um, led the minors in hitting and ops, third in slugging, sixth and on base. And just, uh, he, I, I was telling, you know, you know, Kelsey Hennigan, who we work with, did a feature on him in spring training. And I was telling her, I think he's the most fascinating guy in the minor leagues for me, the entire minor leagues, because, I mean, this is a guy who was a fifth year senior at NCAA Division II, Florida Southern. He, they, they played an abbreviated schedule coming out of the pandemic in 2021, but he homered 13 times in 26 games. And he was a fifth-year senior signed to save money to give to other players in the draft. He signed for $7,500. But he's got it, – it's well above average raw power. It's plus-plus speed. He can play center. He was old for the competition while he was dominating last year because he was 23 when they signed him. But if he comes out and performs this year – that guy's a legit top 100 prospect because his tools are are crazy. And, you know, Jim Gabella, the area scout in the Giants, just stole him for $7,500. Like, I know he was a 23-year-old guy and, and teams don't like age, but the tools, man. And then another super interesting guy in the National League West is River Ryan, who he was a two-way guy at NCAA Division II UNC Pembroke. Teams liked him more as a pitcher, but as is often the case with two-way guys, he wanted to hit. And so the Potters are like, okay, we'll let you hit your first pro summer in 2021. They took him in the 11th round and he was preparing to pitch last year. He was going to be a pitcher last year, full time. It's looking good in spring training. And the Potters were working on a deal, a minor deal for Matt Beatty with the Dodgers. And the Dodgers asked for River Ryan and got him. And I saw him in spring training. He was ridiculous. It was like mid nineties to 98 the day I saw him. He's got a tight power cutter. He's got a tight power, or no, not tight, but a, a power curveball. He's got an, a changeup with fade. I mean, <laughs> it's four pretty good pitches too, and he's been pretty unhittable since he's been on the mound. So um, that one well, it was a pretty nice pickup for the Dodgers. I'm going to go back to the non-drafted free agent, of which there were six. Jeff, <laughs> I know. I, I admitted that. I, 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 I came around. Six. I came uh-huh. around. Now, so uh, Noah DeNoyer you know, wasn't even on our top 30 last year and started getting brought up a little bit at the end of the year as a possible replacement, uh, pitched in the fall league, and then got added to the 40-man roster. And uh, he's now on the Orioles' top 
30, but this is a guy who another, uh, not, uh, you know, not a 2020 guy again, but he was pitching at uh, San Joaquin Delta College as a junior college in California and pitched really well in the Northwoods League. Uh, it's a, a wood bat league. Uh, he played in Eau Claire, uh, Wisconsin, and the Orioles signed him out of there. And he's kind of moved slowly, a, a little bit as a as a swingman. He started some. He he's a, he's relieved some. He, he's gonna pitch out of the bullpen. He's in AAA now. He's now twenty five. Um, so it uh, you know he's getting quote unquote old to be a prospect. But given that the guy wasn't even drafted, and he's kind of moved along slowly. Last year he pitched mostly out of the bullpen and threw well. Um, but didn't, you know, as sort of a multi-inning reliever and then uh, started in the fall league. And he's done a little bit of both this year and hasn't found his footing. But the one thing is he, he keeps missing bats. Uh, he has struck out over 11 per nine in his minor league career. It's at 11.1 this year. The, the command has been off, you know, so, but I, I think he has a chance to impact the big league team at some point if he can kind of get a little bit more locked in because he, he threw He's thrown more strikes over the course of his his career. Uh, he doesn't need to be pinpoint to to be a bullpen guy, but uh, you know he's a an interesting guy uh, who came kind of virtually out of nowhere. Quick, quick quiz time! Very, very quick quiz. Nine hundred players on our thirty top thirty lists. How many non drafted free agents are there among those nine hundred? At least six. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the number is over six. Um, I'm going to say 15. Jason, do you want to go over or under 15? I will go over. And, and it is 17. I, I commend you both. On I'll go two, over by two. Two fine guesses right there. Uh, by the way, you had questioned whether Sal Agostinelli was involved in the signing of... Carlos de la Cruz? Yeah. I don't know, but <laughs> that's very informative. <laughs> but I, but I, I will tell you that he was signed. Do you know who signed him? Alex Agostino. Yeah, he was the area scout credited with both Ohapi and Ben uh-huh. Brown as well. Uh-huh. Okay, similar similar names anyway. All right, uh, let's move on to the prospect team of the week. This week's team highlighted by. Safe to say that the team was highlighted by an absolutely ridiculous week uh, by Jackson Holiday. Guys, I, I questioned whether we'd ever seen a week quite like this. A 2.000 OPS, 13 for 21, eight extra base hits. Uh, he Holiday was named to the prospect team of the week back in week two before he was promoted. Just keeps doing it. You didn't and, even mention his most impressive stat with all that. He struck out one time last week, too, in 24 plate appearances. I don't even know if I'd seen that. I mean, yeah. I, well, I don't know. He if only I got, he only got eight out. Only got out eight times. So he had more. He had, th- he had three times as many triples as strikeouts last week. Yeah. I mean, that's silly. Yeah. Absolutely silly. Uh, the, the team in whole, quickly, Jefferson Cuero is the catcher, Nico Cabadas of the Red Sox, first base, second base, Zach Geloff, third base, Colt Keith, who had the big six for six, uh, two home runs cycle game, which is something that's never been done at the big league level. Jackson Holiday, Gavin Cross, Jordan Beck in the outfield. I'm sorry, uh, Jackson Holiday, then Gavin Cross, Jordan Beck, Andrew Waters in the outfield. Frank Mazzucato uh, is the left-hander, 
Jairo Iriarte is the right-hander, and Victor Vodnik, uh, the relief pitcher, three Royals on the team. Uh, but yet, Jim, I mean, what more <laughs> is there to say about Jackson Holiday? I mean, at this point, I think we have to question how long he's how long he sticks around at this level. No, I, I agree. It's funny. I did a I did a Baltimore radio show this week, or I guess I did at the end of last week. I did on Friday. And they were like, okay, you got to talk us down on Jackson Holiday. Like, we're, we're going too crazy. And I was like, I'm not going to talk you down on Jackson Holiday. Like, he's, I, I, you know, I, I think we talked about this when we discussed market corrections, which I believe was last week. The podcasts are blending together yeah. a little bit in terms of uh, now we're in the throes of draft season. But, um, like, I voted for him the number one prospect in baseball then. I may I may have to literally pound my fist on the table the next time we do market corrections. I mean, we were marveling that he was hitting 392, 523, 667 in low A for two weeks. And now he's hitting 395, 505, 724 in three weeks in in high A. And you know, we could talk an hour about Jackson Holiday, and I'm not gonna do that. But the great ones, we say this all the time, the great players just scoff at your ETA. You can just throw, like we have a 2025 ETA on, on Jackson holiday. We should update that immediately. That should be 2024. That, Cause he's not going to be, it's not going to take him that long, but yeah, I, I agree. Like if you like, we knew he was advanced. We marveled at how good he was coming into the year. But if you'd said, Hey, it won't even be June. It'll be, we'll have eight days left in May. And we'll be talking about, should he be in double a right now? Like I think I'm even his biggest proponent. I would have been like, come on, we got to pump the brakes a little bit. He's not going to be double A two months into the season. But no, I I think you can. I mean, I'm not saying this is going to happen by any means. (laughs) And like I would expect if he goes to double A that he probably won't hit 395. 398. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, like and then so it'll be four a one in triple A and then four a four in the big leagues. But like seriously, he's so advanced at the plate. That I, I mean, I'm not saying this is going to happen. I don't think it's, it's, it's ridiculous to say that, hey, if the Orioles were in contention and they needed an infielder and he keeps playing like this, that when you get to late August or September, you might say, hey, should we call Jackson Holiday up? I, I don't think we're going to see him in 2023, but that, that, that guy to me, he's the number one prospect in baseball. I've said it before. I'll say it again. And now I, now we'll yield the floor to the judge. Adjust, ET- adjust the ETA. That's right. I, I, <laughs> right like, now. I, love, I want that adjusted before the podcast is done. I, lo- I love how you're like saying you're going to have to pound the table as if you're going to get disagreement from anybody. No, I'm, I'm going to literally pound on the table as opposed but to, but you're not going to have to is the point is I'm saying, yeah, I did. You know, we did uh questions on Instagram, you know, video and, the question was realistically, when can we see Jackson Holiday in the big leagues? And I quipped something like next Tuesday. And uh, while well, that's not going to happen, uh, but yeah, it's it's kind of unbelievable what he, he's he's been doing. And yes, let's adjust that ETA. He's he's walked fifty six times and struck out thirty nine times. He's walked more than he struck out at every level he's been at since yeah. he came into pro ball too. Like that's never even last year when he when he struggled by hitting a very unholiday like two thirty eight for two weeks in low A at the end of his debut summer. He still walked fifteen times in twelve games. Like this is ridiculous. The, the guys are. I mean, and what's crazy? Again, we could talk for an hour about Jackson Holiday, but we will not. What's crazy is the Orioles had the number one prospect in baseball in Adley Rutschman. And a lot of times when you have the number one prospect in baseball, I, I know it's not. 
purely random and all teams don't draft and develop equally. But usually you have to wait a while to get your your, your next number one prospect in baseball. And Gunnar Henderson very quickly for the Orioles became the number one prospect in baseball. And now in the very near future, Jackson Holiday is going to succeed Gunnar Henderson. I mean, that's going to be like in less than a K, like if we market correct Jackson Holiday to number one the next time we do the list in June, the Orioles in a span of like 11 months will have had three different position players rank as the top prospect in baseball. And oh, by the way, for most of that time, Grayson Rodriguez ranked as the best pitching prospect in baseball too. That's ridiculous. Yeah, they're doing it right. We'll be we'll be seeing them in the postseason soon, won't we? You think? That's that's usually the way it goes. I, I hope we get Jackson Holiday in the Futures game this year because I don't think he's going to be eligible to play in the Futures game next year because he's going to be in Baltimore. The future is now. I agree with that. Okay, let's answer a question from the mailbag. Comes from our old friend Stevie D, Stephen D'Alessio, who says, "With Kumar Rocker being on and quickly taken off the top 100 list, how much of a factor are injuries when considering where a prospect is ranked?" And Stevie D is uh, uh, referencing some unfortunate timing there, hmm. Jim. Yeah. No, I mean, it was funny. I think, Jonathan, you were driving up and down the East Coast last week when, I don't remember what day of the week was it, Jason. Was it Wednesday? Yeah, I don't I'm not well, sure. Whatever. Kumar Rocker got added to the top 100 prospects list. Um, he was the next replacement. And then I don't even think it was 30 minutes before Kennedy it was, Landry. Yeah, about 30 minutes later. I don't, like, yeah. Kenny Landry tweeted uh, that, that Kumar Rocker needed Tommy John surgery. And I think you you slacked me that tweet. And I knew you weren't joking, but I was like, Really? Are you, are you like, why, why are you doing this? Like, I think I was literally going out the door somewhere. And uh, yeah. And so we, we made the decision. I don't even think we had time to console you, but we clearly would not have added him had we known the time John surgery was coming. So it was like in one of the, probably the oddest top 100 decision we've ever made. And I don't even know what number two would be. We, Kumar was on the top 100 prospects list for, was he even an hour, Jason? Mm-hmm. Maybe around, yeah. yeah. And we took him off and replaced him with Casey Schmidt, who was next up. You know, I think we've talked about how we usually have a working list of the next couple of guys to join as as we prepare for guys to graduate. But um, injuries are it's it's weird because on one hand, yes, guys come back from Tommy John pretty well, so you feel good about that. But you have to factor the injuries into anybody's kind of prospect package, and we clearly would not have added a guy who's now going to miss the next 12 or 15 months with, you know, coming back from elbow reconstruction to the list. Um, although, you know, I, I've often wondered, you know, Mason Miller's on the DL and I, what was Mason Miller 95th on our list right now? Like guys keep moving up as guys graduate. And like, if we got bad injury news on him, you know, I theoretically we might bump Mason Miller off the list. Um, but like you have to take it in consideration, even if it's, Benign's not the right word. Something like Tommy John surgery that you feel good about the guy coming back from because it does set the guy back. And and Kumar will be close to 25 and barely have pitched in pro ball when he comes back. From the rain. It's just a shame because he was really pitching well this year. Yeah, I think that last point is also important. Like You have to take the individual prospect into account and not just the injury. And I think that – you. The nature of the injury does matter. You know, I think we've talked about it on podcasts before, because as you said, people come back from Tommy John surgery. Where you know we we may not have quite as heavy a hand as if it was like say a torn labrum or some sort of serious shoulder injury for for a pitcher. 
Um, like what Daniel Spino is dealing with right now. Right, right. That's when you start to really worry about what that's what he's going to end up being. But, you know, with Kumar, and, and in some ways, Mason Miller is similar without the the pedigree that Rocker had at, at Vanderbilt. But we just haven't seen much of, of either of them. You know, Mason Miller had injuries to begin with. And if he ends up having Tommy John surgery, it's different than the injury that kept him out for much of, of 2022. But I think that with Kumar, you know, everything that happened, uh, him going to indie ball to pitch. I mean, he's thrown 28 innings in the minor leagues. He had 14 kind of uneven innings in the Arizona Fall League. We're, we're not talking about a lot of pitching here, and now he's gone for a year. So uh, to me, that was an easy decision, as weird as it was. Um, you know, and I think, you know, if Mason Miller does end up having surgery and we find that out soon, I actually probably would advocate for taking him off the top 100. And I will say, you know, the, the Kumar thing, while we didn't realize he was going to have Tommy John surgery and he'd been pitching really well, uh, you know, I'll go ahead and, and give us credit because the first outlets reported on Kumar Rocker having shoulder surgery when that kind of came out, you know, late in the draft cycle last year that he had shoulder surgery the previous September there was this notion put out by some media outlets like, oh, Kumar's good to go now. He's all good. And when we talked to teams, we heard from a number of teams that they were intrigued by Kumar, but they were concerned by Kumar and still had concerns about his shoulder and his elbow, that it was not a situation where they felt like, okay, Kumar's as good as new, like 100% clean bill of health. Um, you know, if the Rangers had not taken him third, I still to this day, Jonathan, I don't know where he would have gone in the draft because teams were intrigued, but but also very leery. And it, it's just a shame that that those concerns turn out to be warranted. And I think, you know, going back to the Mets not signing him, I mean, you heard rumors, you know, people, the Mets were very circumspect about talking about what their physical showed, but we had heard talk. I think you heard the same thing, Jonathan. There were concerns about the elbow and concerns about the shoulder, and they've both had surgery since then. So then the Mets, you know, I don't know if vindicated is the right word, but the Mets' decision does not seem, you know, off base by any means. I just think maybe Steve Cohen could have handled it more graciously. <laughs> but the the decision itself, I think, was was, you know, a sound one from a baseball standpoint. All right, Stevie D, thank you again for another great question and thanks to everybody for listening that's gonna be a wrap for this week's mlb pipeline podcast don't forget to subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode if you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions leave us a rating and a review thanks for listening see you next week